0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Paris Gourmet. Delivering specialty foods and ingredients right to your restaurant, bakery, and bar. Learn more at parisgourmet.com.
2: People have always said, like, oh, I can't, I can't do... I can't do gin or tequila or Mm -hmm, bourbon because it has this effect on me. I've never said that. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) sorry. I'm like, (laughs) who are those people? Yeah, (laughs) But, you know, when people say, if I start drinking one thing, I have to stick with it. If I'm drinking white wine spritzers, I can't drink anything else. You're like, no, you're not going to get a hangover from mixing different things. You're going to get a hangover because you drank too many things, which usually happens when you start having multiple different drinks. Exactly.
3: Welcome to the Season 3 finale of Meat and 3. I'm your host, Kat Johnson. You just heard a conversation from a recent episode of Life's a Banquet here on HRN. Jin guru Robbie Nelson sat down with hosts Zara and Breton for an episode dedicated to hangovers. Coming up shortly, we'll get to the bottom of whether it's what you drink, the order of consumption, or simply the quantity. Our stories this week are about the interactions in food both scientific and cultural. We kick things off with the story from Pauline Munch about alcohol-related aphorisms and whether or not they hold true.
1: Beber cerveza antes de tomar vino no
4: previene los... Beer before wine, you're going to be fine. Wine before beer, you're going to be queer.
5: No matter where you're from, chances are you've heard some saying about the best way to drink alcohol. Advice on the proper order of beer and wine can be heard in languages across the world. Although these words of wisdom are meant to protect us from bad interactions and mean hangovers, is there any proof to back this up?
6: Beer auf Wein, das lass sein. Wein auf Bier, das rate ich dir.
5: Meet Dr. Kai Hensel, a German pediatrician who works at the Cambridge University Hospitals. Back in 2016, Kai and three other doctors became interested in these sayings, so they designed a study to test whether the order of beer and wine actually matters for the morning after.
6: A study that is, on the one hand, fun, um, and people can relate to and have a good laugh, but on the other hand, at the same time, be scientifically thorough and rigorous.
5: To learn more about the research, we sent up former HRN intern Connor O'Donovan to meet up with Kai in Cambridge. The study was, quote, a randomized, controlled, multi-armed, matched, triplet, crossover trial. That's academic jargon for a really well-designed study. Essentially, they created three groups of subjects and made them as identical as possible. They matched each group member on a long list of factors, including age, weight, height, amount they drink, and by what they ate.
6: We would calculate every participant's caloric need for the day, and we gave them one-third of that in Um, actually pasta and pesto. Wow. (laughs) So we cooked up to 12 kilos of pasta.
5: And so the experiment began.
6: We had study group one who had beer first Mm. until they reached the legal driving limit, which is 0.05% alcohol in your breath. And then switched from beer to wine until they had about double that amount. And then we did the second group that drank in the opposite order. So they started with, beer, with wine and they had then beer. And a control group that had only beer okay. and drank about the same amount of alcohol. And then a week later, everyone had to come back and drink in the opposite order.
5: Of course, when we drink, we don't do it in labs. Kai and the doctors know this. So they tried to make the study as realistic
6: as possible
5: while keeping it scientific. And that's why the study took place in a sort of refurbished gym space.
6: So they are old sofa couches. Um, it looks from the 60s, 70s, I think. I guess there was a, quite a good space to do the study because some of the these guys did some drinking games, but they couldn't drink much because we, we would limit that. And then towards the, the end of the night, someone put on music and then there was some dancing.
5: But as it turns out, hangover research isn't always easy.
6: Of course, because of the people being students mostly, Mm. and being drunk, it is not easy to (laughs) Mm. make them stop drinking. I mean, we were in control of the drinks, which is fine, Mm. Um, but still to control them and then to go to bed. Because what happens is then, by the time the last participant really went Mm. to bed, it was about 3 a.m., and oftentimes the next day to work, and then the next day we measured the hangover with a validated score, um, the acute hangover scale um, consisting of headache, nausea, vomiting, so measures that represent a hangover.
5: Okay, enough nerdy amazement at this study. We need to know about hangovers.
6: According to the study we did, there doesn't seem to be a difference whether you drink beer first or wine first for the hangover on the next day.
5: Though it's important to note that they only used white wine and lager beer, so there's way more to be studied. Just think of the North American saying, beer than liquor, never been sicker, liquor than beer, you're in the clear.
6: And now it's more liberating. Drink as you go, just make sure on average that you don't drink too much.
5: Still, sometimes we might overdo it and have one too many. And that's when counter-interactions come into play. Once morning hits, counteracting the inevitable hangover becomes the priority. Which brings us back to folklore.
7: She lies in the or the rich.
5: That was Connor again, this time with a Gaelic saying.
7: So that basically translates as, if you're hungover, drink
5: again. Aside from the hair of the dog tactic, cultures around the world have more idioms about their go-to cures. El pelo del perro o te tomas una Coca-Cola. That means drink Coca-Cola, a tactic used in Latin America and beyond, helping to settle the stomach and give a much-needed sugar and caffeine boost.
4: My classic hangover cure has got to be a bacon sandwich and a big cup of tea.
5: In Germany, people eat pickled fish. In France, it's cassoulet or onion soup. In Canada, it's eggs and lots more bacon. But looking at the research, there's still no clear remedy. So with a mighty hangover, go with your gut and try whatever interaction or counterinteraction feels right. In the meantime, if you'd like to read Kai's research, it was published earlier this year from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Just Google grape or grain, but never the twain, to find it.
6: And fun fact, the editor-in-chief of that journal at the time was actually called Dr. Beer. So my cover letter really reads like a comedy. It's like, dear Dr. Beer, this is your study. I don't see any way why you can't accept it.
3: Still thirsty after all that talk of hangovers? Our next story is about a group of scientists taken by surprise by a mixed drink. Aliyah Papes brings us the story of an unexpected interaction with striking medical consequences, all because of citrus.
8: In the 1980s, a clinical pharmacologist and his team were studying the interaction between alcohol and a blood pressure-lowering drug.
7: My name is David Bailey. I'm a professor emeritus, clinical pharmacology, department of medicine, Certain University in uh, London, Ontario.
8: When they got back the results of the study, they noticed something strange. Patients were absorbing much more of the drug into their blood than they predicted.
7: What we found was that individuals had about four or five times higher levels in their bloodstream than we would expect it from the dose that we were giving.
8: David and his team had given one group of patients the blood pressure drug with alcohol and gave a second group the drug without alcohol. But patients from both groups had way higher levels of the drug in their bloodstream than expected. If it wasn't the alcohol causing the higher levels, what was it?
7: I went back and I and I tried to look at what are the most obvious things. Did we get the wrong dose of drug? No. Uh, was there something wrong with the analytical procedures measuring the concentration of drug in your blood? No. So the only thing that was left was... The fact that in this study, the individuals had received their drug with grapefruit juice rather than water.
8: they had used grapefruit juice to mask the alcohol's taste so that patients wouldn't know whether or not they were in the control group. David and his colleagues decided to follow up to see if grapefruit could somehow be responsible for their strange results. David started by testing himself.
7: One day I went into the clinic and took my drug. This drug we were working with, an antihypertensive drug called philodipine, that's water. And the levels were kind of what we would have expected. But when I went in the next day and took it with a good size amount of grapefruit juice, my levels were fivefold higher. It's like taking five times the dose of drug.
8: The team went to work building an official grapefruit study with a larger sample size and got the same results. They weren't sure why yet, but it was clear that grapefruit juice had a huge impact on patients' intake of the drug. The results were so noticeable that medical journals were hesitant to publish the study
4: at first.
7: Well, it was just so unexpected that the attitude was, if this effect is as big as he's saying, somebody should have discovered this long before he did.
8: The team fought persistently for their work, though. Until finally, a major medical journal called The Lancet published their paper in 1989. That study launched a whole body of work, including research that explained why certain prescription drugs are affected by grapefruit.
7: Our best understanding is that grapefruit and a number of related fruits, like seville oranges, limes, and pomelos, contain this group of chemicals called, you ready for it, furanocoumarins.
2: Uh oh.
8: There's an enzyme in our bodies called CYP3A4. It breaks down and eliminates part of many medications after we swallow them. So, usually, only a percentage of the dose we take ends up in our bloodstreams. Unless you eat a grapefruit. The furanocoumarins in grapefruit bind to that same enzyme, CYP3A4, in your gut.
7: So, the enzyme is irreversibly inactivated, it's gone.
8: Then let's say you take your cholesterol drug Lipitor or your anti-anxiety drug Buspirone. Normally, CYP3A4 would help metabolize those drugs. But now your CYP3A4 is gone after those furanocoumarins bound to it. Without the enzyme, your gut breaks down a lot less of your medication and a lot more of the medication gets into your blood.
7: Now there are more than 100 drugs uh, out there in the market that we know for sure, or we would predict, would have significant increases.
8: David says that 1989 study was the most important discovery of his life. Like so many important discoveries, though, it began almost entirely by chance. I asked David how he ended up choosing grapefruit juice specifically to mask the alcohol in their original study.
7: So my wife and I systematically went through everything in the refrigerator to find out what would mask the taste of ethanol. And we tried everything. And we just happened to have a whole lot of juices in the refrigerator that particular day. None of it worked until finally my wife said, you know, I I like grapefruit. So I made it up. And sure enough, I say, you cannot taste the alcohol in the grapefruit. So this is what we're going to use for our study.
8: If you take medication, check out the prescription information and make sure there's no warning against eating grapefruit. And if there is, be sure to thank David, his wife, and their fridge
3: full of juice for the heads up. Meet and 3 will be back after a quick word from our sponsors. This
1: episode is brought to you by Paris Gourmet a leading specialty food importer and distributor servicing the New York tri-state area and beyond from coast to coast. I'm Jordan Werner Berry, the host of Modernist Breadcrumbs here on HRN. When it comes to freshly baked artisan bread, it's key to pair it with butter that's made with the same amount of care and attention. And you don't have to go all the way to France to find truly amazing butter. Vermont 83% is an American butter made using traditional French methods, It's produced by a dairy cooperative in New England. And as a Vermont native, I love that this delicious butter is made locally by Family Farms. Vermont 83% is great for cooking, baking, and serving on your table with fresh breads and artisan cheeses. It's proudly distributed by Paris Gourmet to restaurants and grocery stores around the Tri-State area. Learn more about Paris Gourmet and all of their gourmet savory foods and pastry ingredients at parisgourmet.com.
3: Welcome back to Meet in 3. There are certain food world voices that HRN can't get enough of. One of them is food writer Priya Krishna. Last week, she stopped by our shipping container studio three times for three different shows to talk about her new book, Indianish, Recipes and Antics from a Modern American Family. In our next story, Hannah Forden shares how Priya's parents lovingly brought the flavors of their new home into their culinary heritage.
9: There's a huge community of Indians in Dallas. I mean, in general, in Texas, it's just like teeming with Indians. Uh, I'd like to think that there's lots of wide open spaces and the climate is somewhat similar
4: to India, so it draws people there. Priya Krishna's mother, a software engineer by training, melded traditional regional cuisine from her home country of India with the food of her new home, the Lone Star State. You know, you have these foods that are your comfort
9: foods. You come to a new place, you blend those flavors of that that are most familiar to you with the ingredients that you have on hand my mom loved making uh enchiladas out of roti another thing that my mom loved was in texas you know we ate a lot of burritos and you eat burritos by like peeling away at the foil one layer at a time and my mom just thought that was ingenious so she made little mini burritos of Of roti, where we stuffed them with alu Gobi. and then she would wrap. she like learned how they'd do it at the burrito places and would wrap it just like that. and we'd go on trips. and we'd sl-
4: <laughs> slowly peel apart the layers. cross-cultural influences are seen across the culinary world, and they introduce novel flavor combinations. That's how you know, some of my favorite restaurant dishes are born. That's how Roy Choi came up with the
9: idea of like putting American cheese on top of his ramen. And I find that to be the most exciting cooking that's happening in the U.S. right now.
4: Priya and her mother even noticed a distinctly ish recipe appear in a Bollywood movie. They
9: did a take a version of the American movie Chef. um, And in that movie uh it was really funny they make a basically a version of roti pizza which is a dish in my book and i remember going to that movie with my mom and being like oh my god they're making roti
4: pizza like that's our dish celebration of cross-cultural influence comes after generations of colonial misinterpretation and manipulation in india take what we call curry for example
9: yeah i absolutely loathe that term. The word curry is sort of a monolithic term that was propagated by the British when they colonized India in an effort to sort of um, reduce Indian cuisine to this sort of single entity when in fact Indian cuisine is breathtaking in its diversity. Um, Each dish has different names. It's not just chicken curry or lamb curry or eggplant curry. Those things all have actual names to them And now it sort of continues to be used as this homogenous
4: representation of Indian cuisine. But recipes like Priya's roti pizza find common ground in the flavorful conversation that can occur when different cultures converge in mutual appreciation. One example is tomato rice with crispy cheddar. That recipe is a true, uh,
9: like hodgepodge of things. Cause so it's a mixture of classic South Indian tomato rice is a very, you know, very standard dish, a Spanish rice that my mom and I found in my Spanish textbook when I was in middle school. I love that, yeah. Um, and then my mom's sort of coming to America and learning that, uh, white parents love to melt cheese on things to get their kids to eat it. And she was like, this is genius. (laughs) So we added a layer of broiled cheddar on top. And,
4: you know, sure enough, my sister and I, 10-year-olds, we loved it. Indianish is a joyful dive into the culinary world of Priya's family. Her mother, Ritu, is a powerful force in Priya's life and in her perspective as a writer. Rosie the Riveter is sort of this exalted symbol of feminism. It was almost
9: subverting that symbol in that like, okay, it's still a feminist symbol, but we're making it Indian and we're making it my mom. And instead of we can do it, it's, you can cook it. It sort of felt like this perfect marriage of everything my mom stands for. My mom is a quiet feminist. She's strong. She is, you know, resilient, um, and she's really unapologetic about what she believes in and, and, and what she cooks. And, you know, if I'm half the person that she is 20, 30 years from now, I'll be a happy camper.
3: Listen to Priya Krishna's full interview with Michael Harlan Kell on episode 388 of The Food Scene. And be sure to look out for her book, Indianish, at your favorite independent bookseller. Is your stomach growling after hearing about Priya's recipes? Well, we have one last story for you, focusing on a dish near and dear to the heart of HRN, pizza. Here's Rory White to take us on a journey to master the art and science behind the perfect pizza dough.
10: Dough. It rises and falls. It ferments and flops. It gets pressed out, spun in the air, and fired in a 900-degree oven to make the perfect pizza. In this story, I'm taking a closer look at dough Specifically naturally leavened dough and how it needs a lot more attention and interaction than the kind of dough I first learned how to make as a young pizza chef I'm Rory the newest addition to the meat and three team My first pizza making experience was four years ago on an organic farm in Portugal We had a big pizza party every Friday night where hundreds of punks hippies and vagabonds would descend on our secluded valley for a massive pizza party rave That's where I fell in love with making pizza. Early on Friday mornings we'd have races to see who could mix the dough fastest in these big banged up basins. We thrashed around and covered ourselves in flour. In Portugal the dough rose throughout the day in the blistering sun and no one really gave it much thought, as long as it tasted all right later on at the party, which it always did. Today I continue making pizza with that same invigorated passion at Roberta's in Bushwick. But then, there's sourdough pizza. Known for its light, airy texture and superior taste, it's kind of like having a pet. You have to give it love and attention. You begin with a starter made just of flour and water, and you have to grow it, feed it, and nurture it every day. Importantly, it doesn't use commercial yeast. The leavening agent is created through a process of fermentation. This fermentation process still relies on yeast, just the wild varieties instead. In fact, the process of making sourdough predates commercial yeast by almost 6,000 years. International pizza consultant and sourdough pizza expert, Anthony Falco had some recommendations for our host Dave Arnold in episode 187 of Cooking Issues for how to take care of your starter in advance of using it to make pizza.
2: If you want it to be awake to like actually You know, do the heavy lifting of the, of the lifting of your, of your bread. He's going to need to feed it twice a day, a couple days before you make the pizza. And, And the way he'll know it's ready to go is it will be like bubbly and frothy and light. You know, if it looks like just soupy, wet flour, then somewhere dormant inside that mixture is, is the, the, the combination of the yeast and the bacteria that he needs to, to leaven his dough.
10: There you go. If the starter isn't ready to rock, you won't get those delicious air pockets in the crust, also known as an open crumb. The crumb is a defining feature of a naturally leavened pizza. It's that beautiful cross-sectional and totally Instagrammable picture of the crust. And as Falco says,
2: Crumb would be the those little holes in the indication that like fermentation is happening. And it's really a visual thing, you know, and, 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 you, and you can smell it too. So it's a visual and olfactory uh, indication that are going to be there before you put your sourdough in. It should be literally foaming, like bubbling up and like, you know, you can see all the little holes in the top. When you shake it, it's like light and the consistency of foam. It's actually a foam that
10: is, is what it is. You're constantly feeding the starter to grow and activate the yeast and bacteria so that they can help the dough rise. Temperature and humidity play an important role, too. A higher temperature and humidity in the air will increase the bacterial growth in the starter but decreases yeast growth. On the other hand, a cooler and drier atmosphere has less bacterial growth and more yeast growth. Broadly speaking, the yeast produces carbon dioxide gas which leavens the dough and the bacteria produce lactic acid which contributes flavour in the form of sourness.
2: You're dealing with these living creatures, you know, and you're trying to convince them to do something for you on a, you know, microbiological scale. And then once you start playing with sourdoughs, I mean, everyone's is going to be different. So you really got to get to
10: know yours. Every sourdough is different. The complex interactions between the atmosphere, the microbiome of yeast and bacteria, the scorching hot oven, and also you, the pizza maker, make each pie unique. Really, though... The rewards of using the naturally leavened process is in the delicious flavor and lightness that you just can't get with a normal pizza dough. With a little experimentation and a stable diet of flour and water for your new bacterial friends, you'll be on your way to making delicious, naturally leavened, achingly airy pizza dough in no time. To listen back to the full interview with Anthony Falco, check out episode 187 of Cooking Issues with host David Arnold.
3: That's it for the third season of Meet in 3. Thank you for listening. We'll be back on May 17th with a special episode about our home borough of Brooklyn. Speaking of interactions, interacting with you is one of the most important things we do here at HRN. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your feedback will help new listeners discover Meet in 3, which in turn helps us continue to make the show. Another way to ensure a bright future for food radio is to become a member of HRN. For 10 years, our grassroots organization has told the most important and entertaining stories from every corner of the food and beverage world. It's been an amazing decade, but we can't keep going without the support of listeners like you. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and your contribution of any amount will be truly appreciated. Special thanks this week to Pauline Munch, Aaliyah Papes, Rory White, Michael Harlan-Turkel, Zara Tangora, and Breton Scott. Special thanks also to Lucy Wardle, Brenda Alvarado-Gonzalez, Connor O'Donovan, and Blanche Mena for lending their voices. Meet and 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson, and our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.